0: Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. When I talk about things like digital IDs, the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum, cashless societies, etc., So many of you seem to either shrug your shoulders or roll your eyes. Meanwhile, the powers that shouldn't be never stop working to further enslave us. Case in point, Great Britain's new push to have children use digital IDs at movie theaters. Here's how the compliant folks at Yahoo News explain it. Quote, British cinemas are to introduce digital ID cards so that children have a more convenient way of confirming their age. Close quote. How convenient. How nice of them to help our children. This program is already in place as of May 30th, 2022. All the kids have to do is download an app called Yoti, upload an existing document like a passport, and voila, they can get into any age-appropriate film. So simple, so safe, and so normal, isn't modern life swell, kids? By the way, in sexual predator realms, this is called grooming. And I'm back with Professor Matthias Desmet. Professor, welcome to the post Podcast.
1: Thank you, Mickey. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I appreciate it. Um, I am going to post a your bio in the show notes. But before we kick into our interview, I want to give you the opportunity to tell me and the listeners anything you think we should know about you and your work before we start
1: this conversation. Oh well, wow. uh, I'm I'm a professor in clinical psychology at and the, a the lecturer at the Ghent University, Belgium. Um, well, I also have a master's degree in statistics, which was the, uh, my, the the way the the first perspective I took on the crisis, on the Corona crisis, was a statistical perspective. Uh, not that I consider that perspective myself too important. Uh, I've been very skeptical about statistics throughout my life, and I still am. Uh, but 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 well, the first thing I did in the study was a. Uh, um, taking a closer look, uh, the first thing I did in this crisis was taking a closer look at the statistics and I I immediately noticed um, or I immediately had the impression that they dramatically overrated the dangerousness of the virus. So that was how I uh, entered the public discussion in this uh, crisis.
0: Okay. So the book that you that you wrote that just came out, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, you began this book prior to the um the, the COVID pandemic?
1: No, I started to think about it about totalitarianism back in 2017. Um, because I noticed then that um, we were moving in a direction of a more and more technologically controlled society. On the one hand, there was certain leaders, uh political Uh, elite who uh, wanted more and more technological control, and on the other hand, also the population was asking for it in many respects, out of anxiety for different things, for uh, viruses, for for climate change, and so on. Um, And that seemed to me the the excellent uh, recipe for uh, the emergence of a totalitarian of a a technocratic totalitarianism so back in 2017 i started to think about totalitarianism i started to write down all kinds of ideas and notes about uh, the emerging totalitarianism and then during the corona crisis um, i had a feeling that we were taking a huge leap forward uh, in the direction of technocratic totalitarianism and last year and August I started to write my book and finished it in the beginning of December uh, last year.
0: Okay. So I noticed that you, you specifically um, clarified that it's technological totalitarianism. So perhaps um, you can clarify what that means in relation to uh, for lack of a better phrase, standard totalitarianism. And as your book outlines, juxtapose that with, um, say, a dictatorship, just to give the the listeners an idea of the foundation of of what your book is about and how it connects to what we're all going through now.
1: Yes, many people mistake totalitarianism for a classical dictatorship, which is not the same at all. Uh, The first totalitarian states emerged in the beginning of the 20th century. Before the 20th century, there was no uh, such thing as totalitarian states. Uh, There were Classical dictatorships, for instance, uh, but the classical dictatorship is not the same as a totalitarian state, not at all, even. In many respects, it's the opposite of it. A, cl- a classical dictatorship is based on a very primitive and simple psychological mechanism. It's just based on the fact that the population is scared of a small group, the dictatorial regime, who um, is experienced as having such a aggressive potential that the population accepts that this small group Im- imposes its social contract unilaterally to society. That's a classical dictatorship. Very simple, primitive mechanism. The population is scared for the aggressive potential of a small group. A totalitarian state emerges according to a completely different psychological mechanism. In a totalitarian state, there is first a large scale phenomenon of mass formation, of what is usually called mass formation in society. And um, it's this mass, this crowd um, led by a few leaders that seizes control over the state machinery, the state, the state apparatus, and in this way, creates a new kind of state a totalitarian state and this new kind of state is different from a classical dictatorship in several respects for instance in a classical dictatorship the point of gravity is always situated in the elite in the dictatorial elite meaning that if you eliminate a part of the elite a substantial part of the elite usually the the dictatorial system the dictatorial regime The dictatorship will collapse. If you eliminate a part of the elite in a totalitarian system, nothing happens. This part of the elite is simply replaced and the system continues as if nothing happened. That is exactly why someone like Stalin knew that he could eliminate 60% of his communist party. That the system just would continue as if nothing happened. And he actually did. He did Mm. eliminate 60% of of his Communist Party members. And the system did continue. And the reason is that the point of gravity in a totalitarian system is not in the elite. The point of gravity in a totalitarian system is in the masses, in the mass, in the crowd, in this part of the population that is in the grip of this process of mass formation. That's a few differences. Another difference is that in a totalitarian system um well you have this the leaders you have the masses you have the point of gravity which is situated uh in the mass uh, and um a totalitarian system a classical dictatorship controls the public space and the political no no sorry a classical dictatorship controls the public space and the political space But in a totalitarian system, a totalitarian system controls public space, political space, and the private space, Mm. simply because the totalitarian system has a huge secret police, namely this part of the population that is in the grip of mass formation and that is so fanatically convinced of the ideology and the narratives the masses or the crowd believes in, that they are willing to report everyone who is not loyal to the state narrative or to the state ideology. So that's almost in every family there is at least one person who is fanatically in the grip of mass formation, who fanatically believes in a narrative that led to the emergence of a new social group that they are willing to report all their family members who do not uh, stick to or are not loyal enough to the to the state narrative. So that's why a, a totalitarian system is much, 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 much has a much more suffocating and profound impact on the population than a, than a classical uh, dictatorship has.
0: So now bringing that to um, this current time period, we will add in the, the, the technological, the technocratic totalitarianism, which I would assume is going to be connected to this move towards um, a digital society, a social credit system, transhumanism, and how, that, how seductive that may seem to some of the masses, as you mentioned. So how is that playing out today? And what are the conditions that enable such a mass
1: formation to take hold. Yes, that's true. Like, you know, back in 1951, Hannah Arendt, uh, the German Jewish philosopher who became famous for her theories on um, totalitarianism, uh, warned us already that uh, Nazism, Nazi Germany had collapsed and that Stalinism might soon collapse, but she said, that doesn't mean the end of totalitarianism We will see the emergence of a new totalitarianism, she described. A new totalitarianism, which is not led by gang leaders such as Stalin and Hitler, but which is led by dull bureaucrats and technocrats. And that's so. She she anticipated already the emergence of a worldwide technocratic totalitarianism. A technocratic totalitarianism led by bureaucrats and technocrats and based on technological control. As strict as possible, so that's uh, what uh, is happening now, indeed. And you gave some examples. We see this transhumanist ideology, which um, um, is taking more and more possession of the minds. We see all these QR codes, the the advent of digital IDs and digital coins issued by uh, central banks. Uh, we see these digital uh, smart cities and smart and smart beaches in Australia. Uh, we see all kinds of things that go very fast in the direction of a technocratic totalitarian state, uh, which is a world, which will be a worldwide system. So um, that's indeed what we are at risk of now, um, and that's and, and it is extremely important if we want to know what we can do about it. We have to understand the mechanism of mass formation, the psychological mechanism that is at work in an emerging totalitarianism. Um, Please elaborate
0: on that. Yes, 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 yes.
1: Well, mass formation is a specific kind of group formation, uh, which has a very specific characteristic, uh, mind-boggling impact on uh, the mental functioning of individuals. For instance, when someone is in the grip of a process of mass formation, uh, he typically becomes completely blind for everything that goes against the narratives the group believes in. Uh, someone in the grip of mass formation can believe the most absurd uh, things. For instance, there was a large-scale mass formation in Iran during the revolution in Iran and the the years after the revolution. And people typically started to believe that the portrait of the Ayatollah, which was uh, their leader, uh, was printed on the surface of the moon. And when there was a full moon uh, people typically stood in the streets, pointed at the moon, and showed each other where exactly they could see the picture of the Ayatollah on the surface of the moon. That's one example, but there are so many in history. Wow! Uh, in a in a total in, in a mass formation, pe- people typically uh, do believe everything that the mainstream narrative um, says, and it is as if their capacity to take a critical distance and look critically at the narratives the masses believe in, completely disappeared. A second characteristic of mass formation is that it makes people willing to self-sacrifice radically. It is as if they have no awareness anymore of all their individual and egoistic interests. Very typical. Then a a third characteristic is that people in a mass formation become completely, radically intolerant for dissonant voices. They typically tend to stigmatize the people that do not buy into the narrative they believe in. And in the end, they give them a sign and typically try to destroy them. That's what happens time and time again in the mass formation. And the people in the masses do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. That's extremely characteristic. Um, How does mass formation, this typical group formation, emerge? Well, it's, it emerges when very specific conditions are met in a society. The first and most important condition is that many people should feel disconnected. They should feel lonely. Uh, disconnected from their natural and social environment. And the number of such people increased throughout time and time again, throughout the last few hundred uh, years. Uh, and that is also the reason why uh, throughout the last few hundred years, they let's say throughout throughout the last 300 years, the phenomenon of mass formation became increasingly strong Uh, and in the end led to the emergence of totalitarian states in the 20th century. And now just before the corona crisis, a maximum number of people uh, felt lonely. Uh, About 30% of the people worldwide reported. to have no mean, meaning for relationships and, at all and only connect to others through the internet. Like in, in, uh, in uh, the UK, uh, Theresa May appointed a Minister of Loneliness in 2017 because she acknowledged uh, how many people felt lonely in her country. And the same was true for uh, Northern America where the US Surgeon General um, concluded that there was a loneliness epidemic. So you could clearly see, that's very interesting, that the problem of loneliness, the problem of disconnectedness in the population, was almost perfectly correlated to the to the level of industrialization and technology use in a country. That's very important because mm. it's the, that is what I describe in my in my book in the first chapters that in in one way or another uh, the industrialization of the world and the use of technology led to a disconnection, disrupted the connection between. Uh, individuals and their social and natural environment and that's exactly the reason why mass formation became stronger and stronger and stronger and why in the end uh, the masses ceased control over uh, society and, uh, uh, and, to, and that we witnessed the emergence of totalitarian states in the beginning of the 20th century. So the most crucial condition is this uh, uh, loneliness in the population and then The second condition, also very important, is uh, once people feel lonely, they typically start to be confronted with lack of meaning-making. For instance, just before the corona crisis, 60% of the population worldwide reported that they considered their job to be a so-called bullshit job, meaning that they considered their job to be a job without purpose or meaning. Um, Then, once people feel disconnected and feel Uh, or confronted with experiences of meaning-making, something very specific happens at the level of their affective uh, psychological life, they start to be confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration, and aggression that is not connected to a mental representation, or in other words, anxiety, frustration, and aggression in in which people don't know what they feel anxious for, what they feel frustrated for, and what they feel... Aggressive for. And once the population is in this kind of state, they feel they have the need to escape this state because free-floating anxiety, free-floating frustration and aggression are extremely aversive. If, for instance, if you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, you feel completely out of control. And the same holds for frustration and aggression. If you feel frustrated and aggressive, and you don't know what you feel frustrated and aggressive for, you have no possibility whatsoever to direct that frustration and aggression at something and to liberate you from it. And in this state, something very specific might happen. If under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media indicating an object of anxiety and at the same time providing a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, then all this free-flirting anxiety might connect to this object of anxiety indicated in the narrative. And there might be a huge willingness to participate in a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, even if this strategy is utterly absurd. And that's what happens in every large-scale mass formation, whether we are talking about The crusades or the witch hunts or the french revolution or the emergence of the soviet union or nazi germany it's always the same there's always someone there is a narrative that indicates an object of anxiety the jews the the muslims uh uh who who who, the muslims or 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 the aristocracy or the ancien regime in france doesn't matter or the virus here in the corona crisis there is always a, a narrative that indicates an object of anxiety and then Uh, a strategy to deal with it, and uh, people connect all their anxiety to this object of anxiety and participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, that gives a first very important psychological advantage. In this way, people have the feeling, symptomatically, that they can control their anxiety by participating in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. And they also anticipate the moment where they will be able to direct all their frustration and aggression at the people who do not participate in the battle to deal with the object of anxiety. So, that's the first step. In the second step, something even more important happens. Because many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, people have the feeling to be connected again. There is a new connection, a new solidarity, a new citizenship, and that's the real reason this new connection why people buy into the narrative not because the narrative is correct or accurate or something, no, it's because it leads to this new social bond. You could say, of course, what's the problem with this with, with, with this mass formation? People felt lonely now, they feel connected again, so why not? Well, the problem is that this new social bond, this new group, this mass that emerges is formed not because individuals connect to each other. This new group is formed between all individuals separately connect to the collective, to a collective ideal. Even the longer the mass formation lasts, the more all the psychological energy, all the love, you could say, is sucked away from the bond, the bonds between individuals, and is invested in the bond with the collective. Meaning that in the end, people feel not so, people feel a minimal amount of solidarity for each other and a maximal amount of solidarity to the collective. And this has a very specific effect. This makes that people in the end are willing to report everyone to the collective, to the state, even the people whom they used to love. Most before the mass formation. For instance, I've been talking to this woman of Iran, Sholef Ishtali, about two months ago. This conversation is available on the internet. And she said that she had seen with her own eyes in Iran during the mass formation how a mother reported her son to the state and how she hung the rope around his neck just before he was hung and how she claimed to be a heroine for doing so. That's the dramatic effect of the phenomenon of mass formation. It it destroys all the bonds between individuals, even the most powerful bonds, and it replaces them by one strong bond between every individual separately and the collective. That's also the reason why in the corona crisis we saw that everybody was talking about citizenship and solidarity, and at the same time, people accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help that person. That was on the website yep. of the Belgian, the Dutch government, the European government. It's uh, dramatic. And also, to give another example, people were all talking about solidarity with the elderly. That's why we did it all for. And at the same time, they accepted that they were no longer allowed to visit their father or their mother when they were dying. <laughs> That's That's the dramatic effect of mass formation. It leads to an absolute impoverishment of all the bonds between individuals.
0: Wow. That's what we also... Um, Let me me first say thank you for that clear and concise um, description. And I want to say to the listeners that this is just a sampling of what's in the book i'm urging people to buy the book because you buttress this with so much uh background and evidence and context but just i just want to connect what you said to to some things you said earlier where you mentioned the presence of a secret police and the way you're describing this in many cases as you said the the people become a version of the like a, like a volunteer secret police that they're doing the work for them in terms of spying on each other and specifically to to the corona covid situation it's was so clever of the the uh the people in charge to use phrases like we're all in this together when in when in reality like you said the bond that was being created was not to each other, but to the narrative, but it was very seductive. If you're lonely and isolated and feel your job, you have a bullshit job. It's very, very comforting to believe you're all in anything together. I'm finally together in something with people. It reminds me of descriptions I've heard about um, on a much smaller scale, typically of of cult-like behavior. And people tend to talk about cults and they talk about it now during COVID, that that's something that um, simple people, and unsophisticated people are, are are susceptible to. But as you've said over and over, um, mass formation is not limited to a, a certain uh, intelligence level. In fact, the intelligence might, the intelligent people could be even more susceptible. I, I give one example. The man who wrote the book on propaganda, Noam Chomsky, seems to have fallen directly in line with the COVID narrative now. And just a, a, as an illustration of how None of us are immune, and without the bonds that you're talking about, the people-to-people bond, it's hard to have a, a, a foundation in which we can feel comfortable questioning and sharing ideas with each other.
1: Yes, of course, yes. Um, the intelligence doesn't play a role whatsoever in mass formation. Um, exactly because, well, I, you know, in my book I explain the mechanism, of course, in a much more elaborate way. And then you can understand perfectly why uh, intelligence can't play a role in mass formation. Um, um, And then even more, the higher the level of education, the more vulnerable people are for mass formation. That's true, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, well, I think what's extremely important is that once you understand how the mechanism of mass formation works, Once you see that it is exactly the same as hypnosis, and once you understand how how hypnosis works, then you also know what you can do about it. And that's something very positive, very important to keep a positive mind in this situation, because that's what we need to do. If we know what we have to do, it will be difficult and hard in the nearby nearby future, in the years to come, but we will find a way um, um, to stand to stand up, to 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 and to to uh, to open up a path on which the small group that doesn't go along with the mass formation uh, can walk. Um, um,
0: yeah, I would love for you to 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 get into that. I've heard you. I've read your stuff, and I've heard you talking about how. Unless we address the conditions, mass, uh, the COVID mass formation could be rapidly replaced with the Ukraine mass formation or the monkeypox mass formation, and we need to address the conditions that that make these this sort of um, nonstop avalanche of mass formations happening. And you said it's not coming from. The logical mind or the, the it's not coming from the mindset that created this in the first place so if you could talk more about w- the the type of uh, intellectual and emotional shift that we have to make to understand the scope of this and stop it in its tracks I would love to hear more about that
1: All Right. yes yes well first in a nutshell um um I I think the corona mass formation was already replaced by the ukraine mass formation for a short time so the corona narrative disappeared a little bit in the background but we saw immediately the emergence of a new kind of mass formation and that's logical once a large-scale mass formation set in it actually creates the conditions that led to the mass formation even more that means a mass formation emerges in a society or can be provoked in a society when many people feel lonely, but during the mass formation, the social bonds between the individuals are even more destroyed, meaning that after the mass formation, even more people feel lonely and the population is even more vulnerable from mass formation. You can see this very clearly now. Now that students are allowed to come back to university to follow courses, to follow lectures, they don't come, they don't show up anymore. Only 5% show, shows up and the same in all kinds of companies. Uh, most personnel prefers to work online and stay at home. We see this everywhere. And that shows like the social bond between individuals has been destroyed to a very large extent. And that's why we saw immediately after the corona mass formation the emergence of the Ukraine mass formation. And of course, what we'll see now in a few months, or maybe even faster, the corona narrative will return. It's not, it didn't stop. <laughs> It's, it's there, it will emerge uh, probably again uh, in a few months. And uh, indeed, what we have to, you know, the first very important advice, I will discuss this in a very concise way, is that the people who do not go along with the mass formation have to find the courage to speak out. That's the most important advice on the short term. We have to speak out because mass formation is similar to hypnosis, even identical. It's a phenomenon that is provoked by the voice, the voice of a few people. And if there is a dissonant voice, a different voice in public space, then a mass formation will not become so deep, so dramatically deep that the people in the masses and their leaders start to be fanatically convinced that they have to eliminate and destroy the people that do not go along with them because that is what typically happens. If everybody stops speaking out in public space, that happened in 1930 in the Soviet Union, in 1935 in Nazi Germany, the opposition stopped to speak out, went underground, and in a few months, the destruction campaign started. So it's important to continue to speak out for ourselves, for the people in the masses, because the masses always, in the end, destroy themselves, and also just for our own psychological and I would say mental and spiritual evolution, if you continue to speak out in a quiet way, not trying to convince the other, because that won't work, that never works. You, you usually cannot convince someone who is in mass formation. But just because you would think it's your ethical duty to articulate the words that to you at that moment seem to be sincere and honest words, if you speak out like this in a quiet way, then you'll have this wonderful effect that you constantly disturb the mass formation and prevent cruelties from happening or prevent the radical destruction of the people who do not go along with the masses. So that's just crucial. I could go in much more detail about that, but I don't think we have the time for that. So on the short term, that's the most important advice. It's just live up to the ethical duty of speaking out. That's the first thing. On the longer term, in the longer run, We need, I think, to understand that what leads to mass formation is the mechanist, materialist, rationalist view on man and the world. Since a few hundred years, Western culture started to believe that the universe is a kind of material machine, a set of elementary particles, molecules, atoms, and so on, all interacting with each other according to the laws of mechanics and the machinery that can be perfectly described in rational terms. Well, that's the problem of, of everything. It's that kind of thinking that leads to the mechanization of the world, the industrialization of the world, that leads to, and that in its in its turn leads to mass formation, that in its turn leads to totalitarianism. So the problem in the end is in this mechanistic thinking. That's what we have to overcome. And we, in the first place, we should just learn from, the major seminal scientists, they all told us, and they use the words of Rene Tom now, one of the most important mathematicians of the 20th century and one of the founders of systems theory, he said, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited, and the rest of reality we can only know by empathically resonating with it. That is the crux of the, of the situation. And many, most other famous scientists, Max Planck, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, uh, Lorenz, Mandelbrot, Ibolliai, I could continue forever, all concluded the same. The essence and the core of the universe, of nature, of life, can never be grasped in rational terms. The core of all complex dynamical systems, and I refer to systems theory now, is strictly irrational it's irrational literally it behaves as an irrational number and the better we understand that the more we understand that we need to be like rationality is a certain stage of human mental development we need to be as rational as possible but if we are truly rational in a sincere and honest way we will soon arrive at the point at the limit of rationality, and from there on, we have to move on to a different kind of knowing the world, a different kind of relating to the world, and that's this resonating knowledge that René Tom was talking about. It. It's something we can feel every time we learn a craft or an art, for instance. There is first this rational phase in the training. We can learn certain rules, rational rules, that learn us how, to, how we can create an object or how we can um, um uh, participate in an art there is certain first is a rational stage but we first become a master in the art of we or we first become a craftsman once we start to transcend these rules and start to have a certain feeling for what we are doing once we start to develop a more resonating knowledge with the object we are making for instance it's this resonating knowledge, which offers the most surprising perspectives. Nobody knows this better than the samurai culture in Japan, for instance, where they told, where pupils were told that you first have to learn the techniques of swir- of uh, of uh, sword fighting, but then that it was, that something more difficult should happen. You should be able to forget the techniques again, because if you're go to the battlefield and you're thinking about technique you will die that's what the samurai said Mm -hmm. you need this resonating knowledge in order to survive on the battlefield and um, I, i experienced that myself very clearly it took me until i was 25 years old to finally understand that the core of life and the core of nature for instance can never be grasped by a rational understanding and at that moment for me something very specific Started to happen. I noticed that. I think that almost literally, if you think in a logical way, you build a wall. You connect the one logical idea to the other, and in this way, you build a wall around you, which prevents you of resonating with the eternal music of life around you. And it is as soon as you start to be aware of the fact that your logical, rational understanding will never be really capable of grasping the essence of life around you, at that moment, it is as if all these logical building blocks move away from each other a little bit and the vibration of life around you can enter your being and the strings in yourself can start to resonate, to vibrate with the eternal music of things around you. And it is at that moment, I think, that you start to be capable of tolerating the idea of death and dying, because at that moment, you feel that you're part of something eternal and that you don't need to be so scared of the end of your own physical existence. I think that the most crucial thing we have to realize, we have to do now, is to become aware of the limits of our logical understanding. That's a true revolution. Throughout the, the last few hundred years, the tradition of enlightenment has believed that rational understanding should be the cornerstone of society and of human life, but that's just not true. What we are about to realize now is that rational understanding is just the first stage that is very necessary and wonderful, but it should lead to a next stage in which rational knowing is replaced by a more resonating knowing, which offers the most tremendous perspectives for the human being.
0: Wow. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. It's it's just the concept of of using a phrase the limits of rationality in our current culture just feels revolutionary. And and I've seen people um, talking about how instead of the great reset that the World Economic Forum is trying to force upon us that what we need is a great awakening and i you know we could quibble over the some of the word uses but i think i think that touches on what you're talking about that and i've heard you say this it's it's ending Ending this one after another mass formations, and as you mentioned about Stalin, isn't about defeating the elites. It's about um, reimagining, seeing the world through new eyes, reimagining how we resonate with the world we live in. And then a population that, at least the majority of which, feels that way and resonates that way and recognizes the limits of rationality, is infinitely less susceptible to the charms of a mass formation. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much, Professor. This has been wonderful listening to you. And I just want to say thank you for taking time. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you for all your books, including most recently, I'm saying to the listeners now, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. The link will be in the show notes. This is an essential read uh, now more than ever. And um, I just can't tell you how much i appreciate you taking time to talk and and sharing your wisdom and knowledge and and um guidance to the world right now
1: thank you very much for inviting me mickey and for listening to me
0: thank you very much i'll be right back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor Hey, Mickey Z here, asking you to become a paid subscriber to Postwoke. This is my Substack where I produce daily content uh, articles posts and podcasts and some of it is exclusively for paid subscribers and also paid subscribers are the ones who are able to comment on such posts so for just five dollars a month less than 17 cents a day you get access to all of this and you also are offering essential support for a project that i want to keep going and growing so i thank you in advance for that In the meantime, please feel free to peruse the show notes to find a link for the project that I've been running for nearly six years, a one-man mission to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to purchase a really cool post-woke t-shirt to let the world know what your favorite podcast is. And one more thing in the show notes is a link to my NFT photography collection in case you're interested in purchasing a non-fungible token. So I thank you for your time and for checking out all those links. And please, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. It makes a huge difference. I thank you in advance, and let's get back to the show. I've sometimes gained personal training clients thanks to the ordinary act of correcting a stranger's workout form. You see, to put it bluntly, at least 90% of people I've encountered in gyms are essentially clueless when it comes to proper technique. These folks might be able to negotiate and navigate an expansive range of skills and challenges in the outside world, yet they're incapable of performing, say, a quality squat within the mirrored confines of your average fitness facility. Therefore, a casual suggestion offered with the most opportune timing just may result in a symbiotic relationship. It also could alter the history of women's tennis. Back when Martina Navratilova had made the quantum leap from talented tennis player to enduring sports legend, fate placed her in a health club weight room alongside yours truly. So let me backtrack to my initial encounter with the icon herself. You see, I worked at the Vertical Club, sort of the Studio 54 of gyms in New York City. And when you worked there, you could walk right past one of its several tennis courts on your way to patronizing the underappreciated third floor restaurant. This means you could peruse top tennis professionals along with celebrities like Mick Jagger or Tom Hanks, plying their crafts, right up and close and personal. So when I learned that Martina was in the house, I made sure to behold her prowess in action. I positioned myself near center court, like right up next to the net, and I marveled as the fuzzy yellow ball relentlessly rocketed past me, never more than a few millimeters above the net, Navratilova's power and control was breathtaking to witness. I felt honored to watch her in her prime at such close proximity. After the practice session, Martina and I ended up riding the same elevator down to the second floor gym. She's a lefty, and thus I found myself surreptitiously sneaking peeks at her left forearm. From gripping the racket, it had ballooned to double the size of her right forearm, not to mention the roadmap level of vascularity. I asked her about it, but she was too modest to flex. Advantage, Navratilova. About a half hour later, I was back on shift in the weight room, and there was Martina. She was preparing to perform a tricep exercise, of which the margin of error is larger than might be expected for such a minor movement, and Martina's form wasn't even in the same neighborhood as correct. I knew I had to step up. You know, in the interest of sports and pop culture history and all that. So even if we hadn't previously met, I would have felt calm and assured as I approached Ms. Navratilova. Being a trainer and wearing the requisite uniform shirt to prove it allows someone like me to engage with someone like her without instantaneously being taken for a CAD. Advantage, Mickey Z. Hence, I ambled over to the tennis champion, reintroduced myself, and used generic correction line number one. May I show you another way to do that? This shrewd approach never fails to curtail the likelihood of a defensive retort. You haven't told anyone they're wrong. You're just providing an alternative. As you might have presupposed, Martina was gracious. She secured the proper form within seconds, thus saving herself from a potentially career-ending injury. And yeah, women's tennis would never be the same. Game, set, match. For me, it was just another day in the dumbbell domain. But what I did for Martina could be summed up as advising, keep your guard up.